Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with one of the biggest stories of the week, if not the biggest, Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. And I'm going to start with this article in the Telegraph. Iran nuclear deal, what is the agreement, why is Trump pulled out of it and what happens next? Donald Trump on Tuesday pulled the United States out of an international nuclear agreement with Iran, raising the risk of conflicts in the Middle East and straining ties with Britain and the other European allies. Well, it raises the risk of conflicts in the Middle East, that's what they want. In a televised address from the White House, the US President said he would reimpose US economic sanctions on Iran to undermine a horrible one-sided deal that should never, ever have been made. Mr. Trump's decision intensifies the strain on the transatlantic alliance since he took office 16 months ago, especially after European leaders made trips to Washington and repeatedly appealed to Mr. Trump to preserve the deal. We cannot prevent an Iranian nuclear bomb under the decaying and rotten structure of the current agreement, he claimed. We will not allow American cities to be threatened with destruction. We will not allow a regime that chants death to America to gain access to the most deadly weapons on Earth. Here is everything you need to know about the deal and what happens next. In 2015, Iran agreed to rein in its nuclear program in a deal struck with the US, UK, Russia, China, France and Germany. Under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the West lifted sanctions in exchange for Tehran agreeing to significantly cut its stores of centrifuges and rich uranium and heavy water, all key components for nuclear weapons. The pact negotiated by the US administration and former President Barack Obama was designed to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear bomb. For Tehran, it provided a significant boost for the economy. It had previously been hit with the devastating economic sanctions by the United Nations, United States and the European Union. Iran nuclear deal, key details, uranium enrichment. Before July 2015, Iran had almost 20,000 centrifuges under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was restricted to 5,060 centrifuges and its uranium stockpile reduced by 98% to just 300 kilograms for the next 15 years. It was also restricted to enrichment of no more than 3.67% of this. Plutonium production. The JCPOA did not permit Iran to build additional heavy water reactors or accumulate excess heavy water which can be used to produce weapons-grade plutonium for 15 years. Monitoring. Inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency were allowed to access any site that they deemed suspicious and to verify that no fissile material was moved covertly to a secret location to build a bomb. Sanctions. The UN, US and EU agreed to lift sanctions that had been enforced in an attempt to force Iran to halt uranium enrichment. Under the deal, Iran is allowed under the deal, Iran is only allowed to maintain a stockpile of 661 pounds of low enriched uranium compared to the 220,460 pounds of higher enriched uranium it once had. It can only enrich uranium to 3.67%, which can be used to fuel a civilian reactor, but is far below the 90% needed to produce a weapon. Iran previously had about 20,000 centrifuges, devices that are used to enrich uranium. The agreement restricts the country to no more than 6,104 older model centrifuges at two inspected sites. The country was also forced to reconfigure a heavy water reactor so it couldn't produce plutonium and agreed to convert its four-day enrichment site down deep into a mountain site into a research centre. To ensure it was compliant with the deal, the United Nations Nuclear Watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Commission, can inspect any declared nuclear site at any time. It can also demand access to any other site deemed suspicious. Iran has 24 days to allow such an inspection, and if Iran refuses, an arbitration panel weighs the request and sanctions can immediately restart. Why doesn't Donald Trump like it? From the campaign trail on which Mr. Trump has taken issue with a number of aspects of the pact, he complains that the accord does not prevent Iran from testing intercontinental ballistic missiles. He was also criticised the sunset clause, which means Iran gets sanctions relief up front but could return to controversial activities as early as 2025. Furthermore, his administration has been anchored by Iran's support for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, the Lebanese armed group Hezbollah in Syria's civil war, and Shiite Houthi rebels in Yemen. All countries 
the West wants to target. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. Mr Trump claimed there would be a nuclear arms race in the Middle East if he allowed the deal to stand. Experts also say the decision has as much to do with domestic politics as it does about foreign policy, but mostly foreign policy, if we're telling the truth about it. I think politics was one of the main factors in Trump pulling out of the agreement, Brendan Thomas Noon, a nuclear non-proliferation expert of the United States Studies Centre, told The Telegraph. He goes on to say, 1. Trump has demonstrated scepticism about agreements and policies from the Obama administration, and 2. Pulling out of the deal was a repeated point on his stump speeches during the election, which he has followed through on. Trump follows through on his impulses, and this, been, and this has been a long-standing political impulse of his. Well, just because someone follows through on something doesn't mean that they should have done. What does Britain say? The government concedes the agreement fails to cover areas such as ballistic missiles and is time limited. But it insists it is the option with the fewest disadvantages. Germany, France and the United Nations all urge the US not to withdraw with Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson making a last ditch attempt to preserve the deal during a trip to Washington on Monday. After Mr Trump's announcement, Theresa May after Mr. Trump's announcement, Theresa May issued a joint statement with Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron saying the decision was a matter of regret and concern. Appearing on Fox News on Monday, Mr. Johnson had urged Mr. Trump not to withdraw from the deal. We think what you can do is be tougher on Iran, address the concerns of the president and not throw the baby out with the water, he said. Tougher on Iran? What has Iran done? Nothing. He argued that despite the deal's weaknesses, backing out of it could lead to Iran developing nuclear weapons, a move which could prompt Saudi Arabia and the Emirates to follow suit. We don't want to go down that route, he said. Well, stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, then that'd be a start. Mr Thomas Noon said Mr Trump's decision could precipitate the greatest transatlantic split since the 2003 Iraq war. The United States could find itself completely isolated on this issue from all of its major allies in Europe, something that even didn't occur during the Iraq war, he said. It would also fundamentally shake confidence in US decision-making and commitments within allied capitals in Europe. The Trump administration decided to withdraw from the agreement even after significant lobbying visits to Washington from France and UK and Germany this year. What happens next? Mr Trump said he would impose the highest level of economic sanctions on Iran. Why? Well, I've already said why. The sanctions, which will come into effect between three and six months from now, target Iranian oil exports to the country's central bank and Iranian businesses. The president said he was open to striking a new wider deal with Iran that would address behaviour such as the country's ballistic missiles programme and involvement in Syria and Yemen. Mr Trump said he wanted a real comprehensive and lasting solution that would thwart Iran's nuclear ambitions. There doesn't seem to be a plan B in place by the administration other than reimposing sanctions, Mr Thomas Noon said. National Security Advisor John Bolton has said they are willing to reopen negotiations on a new deal, but it looks fairly certain at the moment that none of the other parties are interested. Britain, Germany and France said they remain committed to the accord and encouraged Iran to show restraint in response to Mr Trump's decision. Iran's government must now decide whether to follow the US and withdraw or try to salvage what's left with the Europeans. San Rouhani, the Iranian president, said he was sending his foreign minister to the remaining countries but warned there was only a short time to negotiate with them. He warned that if negotiations with other partners to the deal failed, then the country's Iranian program would restart. And there's an article here in The Guardian which explains the situation a bit more. What is the Iran deal and why does Trump want to scrap it? Donald Trump said Tuesday that the US will exit the Iran nuclear agreement in violation of the landmark deal. What is the Iran nuclear deal? Iran and a six-nation negotiating group reached a landmark agreement known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in July 2015. It ended 12 years of deadlock over Tehran's nuclear program. Struck in Vienna after nearly two years of intensive talks, the deal limited the Iranian program to reassure the rest of the world that it would be unable to develop nuclear weapons. 
in return for sanctions relief. At its core, the JCPOA is a straightforward bargain. Iran's acceptance of strict limits on its nuclear program in return for an escape from the sanctions that grew up around its economy over a decade prior to the accord. Tehran also accepted extensive monitoring by the International Atomic Energy Agency, which has verified 10 times since the agreement, and as recently as February that Tehran has complied with its terms. In return, all nuclear-related sanctions were lifted in January 2016, reconnecting Iran to global markets. Which countries are involved? The six major powers involved in the nuclear talks with Iran were in a group known as the P5 plus 1. The UN Security Council's five permanent members, China, France, Russia, the UK and the US and Germany. The nuclear deal is also enshrined in the UN Security Council resolution that incorporated it into international law. Fifteen members of the council at the time unanimously endorsed the agreement. Just a point on the UK, people might wonder why the UK is a permanent member of the UN Security Council given that it's a small country, especially in comparison to a country like Russia or America. But the UK is a permanent member because of its importance in the wider scheme of things in terms of the elite's agenda. Why does Donald Trump want to scrap it? Donald Trump's victory in the November 2016 US election but the fate of the deal in doubt. Trump promised before his election to dismantle the disastrous deal with Iran, although many believed he might instead adopt a more rigorous implementation of the agreement and tighten sanctions already in place. This could force Tehran to violate first or make the deal redundant. In January, he reluctantly waived a raft of sanctions against Iran as required by Congress every 120 days, but said this is a last chance and asked European countries to join with the United States in fixing significant flaws in the deal. The congressional deadline Trump faces this time is the 12th of May, but he tweeted on Monday that he would announce his decision by Tuesday. This was published on the, the 9th of May. Trump believes the agreement is a bad deal which falls short of addressing Iran's regional behaviour or its missile programme. He is emboldened by a group of Iran hawks in his inner circle, such as the National Security Advisor John Bolton and the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. John Bolton was part of an organisation called the Project for the New American Century, which in September 2000 published a document calling for a series of countries to regime change and conflict with. And they say in the document that the US must fight and decisively win multiple simultaneous major theatre wars as a core mission. And these people in the organisation that produced this document were those who either directly or indirectly interfaced with the Bush administration. And the document is called Rebuilding America's Defences, Strategy, Forces and Resources for a New Century. And the list of countries included Iran, North Korea, China, Libya, Syria, Yemen and Lebanon. And look at what's happened since in relation to that. The article goes on. Critics also say it is another example of Trump dismantling Barack Obama's legacy. The Iran deal was his signature foreign policy achievement. Well, there weren't many. Why do others want to save it? Except for the US, all other P5 plus one negotiating partners want to keep the agreement. In the words of Boris Johnson, the UK Foreign Secretary, who has visited Washington DC to lobby Trump not to scuttle the agreement. Of all the options we have for ensuring that Iran never gets a nuclear weapon, this pact offers the fewest disadvantages, says Boris Johnson. After the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu unveiled a cache of documents the claim showed Iran was cheating on the agreement, European countries pushed back against this, saying the documents underline the importance of keeping it. Well, anything Benjamin Netanyahu says has to be taken with a massive pinch of salt because anything he says is what the elite wants him to say because of Israel's fundamental significance to world affairs, not least foreign policy. And I've talked about Israel before in episode 10. One of the items on the Trump presidency wish list is Iran because they've wanted a conflict with Iran for years and years and years. 
I said Iran was on the list of the project for the new American century countries. The countries on the wish list will go back further than that, but you can pick it up in 2000. And this is just another attempt to make a conflict with Iran happen. It's interesting when you look at a list of countries that Iran has invaded and bombed. Well, there's no one there. But when you look at a list of countries that American and Britain has invaded and conflicted with, well, how many reams of paper do you have? But of course, all you have to do with many people is tell them a country is dangerous through the media and they'll believe it, even a country like Iran. Demonizing Iran is another tactic, but it's not quite as easy to do that with Iran as it is with Russia, even though they're trying and get people to believe it because of Iran's history. So this pulling out of the nuclear deals is the tactic they're trying now. But it's only the tactic they're trying now. If this doesn't work, they'll try something else. They're talking about possibly imposing sanctions on Iran when Iran hasn't even done anything yet. Sanctions are supposed to be there when a country has done something wrong or has broken a law. When you talk about breaking laws, Israel has not even signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is supposed to be there to ensure countries are kept in check with regards to nuclear weaponry. And Israel has all this weaponry that nobody talks about because it's Israel. Talk about hypocrisy, and yet Trump is saying we can't trust Iran with weaponry because it's not about keeping to what is true and what is the best way to deal with the situation. It's about keeping to the agenda, and the agenda says Iran must be targeted, so that's what they're trying to do now. There's another article here which goes into more detail. This is in the Telegraph. Donald Trump announces withdrawal from Iran nuclear deal. Donald Trump pulled America out of the Iran nuclear deal on Tuesday, reimposing sanctions on the regime and delivering on an election campaign promise. The US president said the defective 2015 agreement would not stop Iran developing a nuclear bomb and signed a presidential memorandum enacting the US withdrawal. Iran has been accused of failing to be honest about its nuclear ambitions while supporting terrorist groups and acting in an increasingly hostile way across the Middle East. Britain, France and Germany condemned the move in a joint statement and promised to stay within a nuclear agreement claiming that it was the only way to prevent a Middle Eastern nuclear arms race. However, the White House announcement was welcomed by Israel which released new intelligence on Iran's nuclear program last week and several Arab nations. Mr Trump said, It is clear to me that we cannot prevent an Iranian nuclear bomb under the decaying and rotten structure of the current agreement. The Iran deal is defective at its core. If we do nothing, we know exactly what will happen. In just a short period of time, the world's leading state sponsor of terror will be on the cusp of acquiring the world's most dangerous weapon. Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. It's rich for the American president to talk about state sponsorship of terror when Britain and America support tyrannies like Saudi Arabia and Israel and sell arms to Saudi Arabia, some of which end up in the hands of Islamic State. The hypocrisy of Britain and America is extraordinary. The US president added any nation that helps Iran in its quest for nuclear weapons could also be strongly sanctioned by the United States. Hassan Rouhani, the Iranian president, warned that if negotiations with other partners to the deal fail, then the country's uranium program will restart. Shortly after the announcement, there were widespread reports of an explosion in Syria, believed to be the result of an Israeli strike on Iranian forces. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights later said at least nine pro-government fighters were killed, including members of Iran's Revolutionary Guards. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is a source that the mainstream media quotes constantly, and it sounds like it's this big centre of knowledge on Syria, in Syria. It's one guy from his home in Coventry who was in a sad dissident and a sad hater and 
the media constantly quotes this guy for knowledge on Syria. It's incredible, but that's the mainstream media for you. The article goes on. On Wednesday, footage emerged of hardline Iranian MPs lighting a paper US flag on fire in Parliament and shouting death to America. The politicians, including a Shiite cleric, held the flaming flag alight as their colleagues joined their chants. They also burned a piece of paper representing the nuclear deal and stomped on the paper's ashes. The impromptu demonstration reflected broad public anger in Iran after Mr. Trump's decision. The decision to reimpose sanctions raises fears that European companies who trade with the Iranian government and do business in America could be hit with sanctions. Mr. Trump has long been a critic of the Iran nuclear deal, which was signed by his predecessor Barack Obama and lifted sanctions in turn for the country's nuclear program being curbed. Mr. Obama criticised the decision as a mistake. Mr. Trump said he was open to striking a new wider deal with Iran that would address behaviour such as the country's ballistic missiles program and involvement in Syria and Yemen. The US president said he wanted a real comprehensive and lasting solution that would thwart Iran's nuclear ambitions. He also made clear he was delivering on the 2016 election campaign pledge, saying the United States no longer makes empty threats when I make promises I keep them. What like indicting Hillary Clinton and building a war between America and Mexico? Those kind of promises. Not that I think there should be a war, but that's what you promised to do. The reimposition of sanctions will come into effect between three and six months from now. It includes sanctions on Iranian oil exports, the country's central bank, and Iranian businesses. Iran nuclear deal, key details, uranium enrichment. Before July 2015, Iran had almost 20,000 centrifuges. Under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, it was restricted to 5,060 centrifuges and its uranium stockpile reduced by 98% to just 300 kilograms for the next 15 years. It was also restricted to enrichment of no more than 3.67% of this. Plutonium production. The JCPOA did not permit Iran to build additional heavy water reactors or accumulate excess heavy water which can be used to produce weapons-grade plutonium for 15 years. Inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency were allowed to access any site that they deemed suspicious and to verify that no fissile material was moved covertly to a secret location to build a bomb. Breakout time. The time required to produce enough weapons-grade uranium for one nuclear weapon. But the restrictions in the JCPOA increased the estimated window to one year or more. Sanctions. The UN, US and EU agreed to lift sanctions that had been enforced in an attempt to force Iran to halt uranium enrichment. The measures uncrippled the country's economy. European companies with significant presence is in the US could be caught up if they do not curtail business in Iran before the sanctions come into effect. Some of them were exploring ways to continue doing business in Iran after making significant investments following the announcement of the nuclear deal three years ago. The UK, France and Germany issued a joint statement saying they regret the decision and making clear they would remain in the agreement known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The statement said, Our governments remain committed to ensuring the agreement is upheld and will work with all the remaining parties to the deal to ensure this remains the case, including through ensuring the continuing economic benefits to the Iranian people that are linked to the agreement. It went on, We encourage Iran to show restraint in response to the decision by the US. Iran must continue to meet its own obligations under the deal, cooperating fully and in a timely manner with IAEA inspection requirements. EU leaders are expected to meet within days to discuss how the deal can be rescued. Mr. Rouhani, the president of Iran, said Iran would stay in the nuclear deal for now, but was prepared to return to enriching uranium if its interests were not preserved. He denounced Mr. Trump's speech of psychological warfare against Iran, but said his country would not bow to pressure. Our people have always been victorious in the face of conspiracies, and we will also emerge victorious at this juncture. But he warned, I have ordered Iran's atomic organization that whenever it is needed, we will start enriching uranium more than before. Russia said it was deeply disappointed by Mr. Trump's decision.
Iran nuclear deal, the sanctions explained. What sanctions are being imposed? The US was due to decide whether to continue waiving sanctions on Iranian oil exports in its central bank on May the 12th. A further decision on waiving specific sanctions against an array of Iranian business sectors, companies and individuals happened due in July. Mr Trump decided to put all the sanctions in place. Iran hasn't done anything. They haven't actually done anything wrong at this point. And as I said, when you look at the history of Iran, in terms of foreign conflicts and invasions, there's no one there. There's no country on the list. Do the sanctions come into effect immediately? No. There is a wind-down period. There are myriad different sanctions, and the wind-down varies between 90 and 180 days. It is intended to allow companies doing business with Iran to finish up. It applies to existing contracts, not new ones. Are European companies affected? A US administration official said any companies involved in out-jurisdiction could be. So European multinationals that use the US banking system might face problems. The European Union has said it is looking at steps to protect its companies doing business with Iran. Such business boom following the signing of the nuclear deal in 2015. Those measures could include using non-dollar lines of credit and European Union law to insulate its companies. Can the deal survive or could a new one be negotiated? The UK, France and Germany have said they want the deal to continue, although some experts have suggested it would be on life support without the US. A shrewd diplomatic response for Iran would be to remain in the deal, trying to drive a wedge between the US and its European allies. Mr Trump has made clear he is willing and able to negotiate a new deal, which would mean great things could happen for Iran. Could this lead to nuclear proliferation and war in the Middle East? A complete collapse of the agreement could see Iran starting up uranium enrichment again and freezing out inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency. Saudi Arabia could start developing nuclear weapons, but that would be along with the weapons that the West, Britain and America, sells to Saudi Arabia. In a statement, the Russian Foreign Ministry said it was extremely concerned that the US was acting in its own narrow and opportunistic interest and grossly violating the norms of international law. It added Washington's actions undermined international confidence in the International Atomic Energy Agency, the decisions of a new confirmation of Washington's incompetence. The ministry said it was open to discussion with other members of the Iran deal. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister and the leading critic of the Iran deal, said Mr Trump had made a brave and correct decision to withdraw from the agreement. So Trump, the American president, has done something the Israeli Prime Minister agrees with. Well, stands back in amazement. Israel fully supports President Trump's bold decision today to reject the disastrous nuclear deal, Mr Netanyahu said in a speech moments after Trump's address. The Israeli leader has consistently warned that the deal would pave the way for Iran to build an arsenal of nuclear weapons and called the agreement a recipe for disaster. See, the Israeli Prime Minister and Trump are just demonising the same country because they want to target the same country. This is why they're both demonizing Russia. It's the same agenda. Shortly before Mr. Trump's speech, Israel's military said it detected irregular activity of Iranian forces in Syria and ordered Israelis on the Golan Heights to ready their bomb shelters. What's interesting is that the United States has used the excuse of Iran being a threat because of nuclear weapons to install intercept bases in Iran. Israel has 200 nuclear missiles pointed at Iran and yet, as I said just now, Israel is a nuclear power. But of course they won't touch Israel. The hypocrisy is stunning, as I said. This is an article in the New York Post about Israel having 200 nukes pointed at Iran. This is the article. Israel has 200 nukes pointed at Iran, according to Powell emails. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell blew the lid off Israel's hush-hush nuclear program, saying the country has 200 warheads pointed at Iran, according to his hacked emails. In the March 2015 
missives which reveal information the Jewish state has long sought to keep under wraps. Powell wrote to Democratic Party donor Jeffrey Leeds about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech to the US Congress, in which he warned against the planned Iran nuclear deal. Leeds said Netanyahu said all the right things about the president and all the things he's done to help Israel, but basically said this deal sucks, and the implication is that you have to be an idiot not to see it. According to foreign policy website Loblog, which cited emails leaked this week by DC Leaks, this was published on September the 16th, 2016. Powell 79 responded that given Israel's imposing arsenal, it would be very unlikely that Iran's mullahs would decide to build a nuke. Negotiators can't get what he wants. Anyway, Iranians can't use one if they finally make one. The boys in Tehran know Israel is 200, all targeted on Tehran. And we have thousands, Powell wrote, low blog reported. As Ahmadinejad said, leader of Iran at the time, what will we do with one? Polish it? I've spoken publicly about both North Korea and Iran. We'll blur the only thing they care about, regime survival. Where, how will they even test one, he said, referring to former Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Powell later expressed support for the nuclear deal between Iran and world powers, acknowledging Iran's right to enrich uranium for nuclear power. The deal requires Iran to reduce its stockpile of low enriched uranium by 98% for 15 years and redesign the reactor so it can't produce plutonium for nuclear weapons. Israel, which is not a signatory of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, maintains a policy of nuclear ambiguity and has long remained mum about the science and even the existence of its nuclear weapons program. According to a 2014 report by the Federation of American Scientists, Israel is believed to possess between 80 and 400 nuclear weapons, though the report's authors estimated the number was closer to 80, the Times of Israel reported. As a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Powell's figure of 200 warheads would appear to be more authoritative than the approximations by news media reports think tanks, authors and analysts cited in the FAS report, the Israeli news site reported. Leaked emails also shed light on how the retired four-star US Army general insulted Donald Trump as a national disgrace and an international pariah, as well as calling Hillary Clinton a greedy, not transformational politician. DC leaks as ties to a Russian military intelligence hacker group called Fancy Bear, the Washington Post reported. Any other country in the world that does what Israel does and is a nuclear threat like Israel would be treated the same as they're trying to do with Iran now, but because it's Israel, nothing happens, nothing said. And why is it that a country of around 8 million people has such global influence, not just with foreign policy, but censorship? And once you answer that question, then it all makes sense. And I've talked about what the answer to that question is in episode 13. Once you realise that the countries being targeted by the West are on a wish list and are part of a much wider agenda than everything makes sense. More politically correct idiocy here with this story in the Daily Mail. Labour's Emily Thornbury blasts Little Miss Books as sexist because they suggest women are worth less than men is Good Morning Britain viewers slam ridiculous debate. Labour's Emily Thornbury insisted Little Miss Books should be renamed today because they suggest women are worth less than men. Shadow Foreign Secretary, just let that sink in, that's who she is, waded into the gender row on Good Morning Britain after viewers were already outraged at the children's books being labelled sexist. Miss Thornbury said she did not like the contrast drawn between Mr Men and Little Miss and the children's classics. Her intervention came after journalist Eleanor Mills claimed the books reinforced gender stereotypes and discouraged little girls from being confident leaders. Well, this is interesting because as I pointed out in last week's episode, political correctness enforces stereotypes as it sees everyone as a group, and it doesn't do merit, it judges every situation and every member of every group the same, which means it's enforcing stereotypes, which it claims to be against doing, but it does it. Because as I said last week, and I've said in episode 13, political correctness is the ultimate discrimination. 
while claiming to be against discrimination, and I've explained why that is. The Good Morning Britain debate followed an Australian academic's comments that the books were misogynistic because the Little Miss characters are more passive and often have to be saved by the Mr. Men. Miss Thornbury told the programme, I don't like this thing about being little. I think that's my problem with the Mr. Men books. Why do you have Mr. Men and then Little Miss? It's something about women being less. Miss Thornbury said if the titles were tweaked and were changed to Miss, then she would have no problem being known as Miss Trouble. Yeah, but then if you did that, then you get other people complaining that it's Miss instead of Mrs. Why are they not married? Or people would say, why do they have to be married? Why do they have to be with a man? Why can't they be independent? So it doesn't matter what you do, someone's going to have a problem with it. Earlier in the show, Miss Mills joked that Mr. Tickle, an orange character with distinctively long arms and uses to tickle as cartoon pals, was comparable, wait for this, they were saying Mr. Tickle was comparable to the disgraced film producer Harvey Weinstein. Mr. Tickle is comparable to Harvey Weinstein, apparently. It's fucking nonsense. And until people realise that, then this is going to continue. But her remarks prompted some viewers to call the debate ridiculous. Well, that's one way of putting it. And proof the world has gone mad on Twitter. You see, now this is a point. This is a really important point. People say when they come across stories like this, they say political correctness has gone mad. It hasn't gone mad because the goal of political correctness is to censor as many people as possible and to only have its version of everything being expressed. So it's not gone mad. It's actually attempting to achieve what it was always set out to do. It's not gone mad. It's, that's the whole point. That's what it's supposed to do. Miss Mills, director of the editing of the Sunday Times, said the books discourage women from taking the lead at a young age and prevents them from being successful when they grow up. She explained, I think they are sexist. If you look at the narratives in them, the women in them are always having to be saved by Mr. Strong or somebody like that and they often have to do domestic tasks for Mr. Lazy. If you're a mum of girls, what you're trying to do now is trying to get them to speak up to be leaders. The names of the Mr. Men and Little Miss characters have been questioned as the male characters often have names and more positive attributes than the male ones. For example, there is Mr. Strong and Mr. Brave, while female characters are called things like Little Miss Bossy and Little Miss Chatterbox. Well, A, the books are targeted at kids. B, when you've got little girls, kids, there is a lot of young girls who are bossy. There are a lot of young girls who are show-offs and want to talk all the time, but then there's a lot of boys who want to talk all the time as well. They're stereotypes that apply to kids of the age that it's aimed at. That's why they're called that. That's why they got those characters. Many viewers disagreed with Mill's comments and took to Twitter to vent their frustration. Arguing on the other side of the debate was Chris McGovern, the chairman of the Campaign for Real Education, who read out a mock letter written by Mr. Silly, in which he took credit for deliberately sparking the debate because it was nonsense. McGovern said, I wish we would stop foisting adult neuroses on young children. Give them a childhood. Girls, by the way, benefit hugely from all this because they outperform boys at primary school, secondary school and university, says Chris McGovern. Piers Morgan pointed out that the monarch, prime minister and commander of the Metropolitan Police are all women, so it is possible for little girls to grow up unaffected by gender stereotypes. But Miss Mills disagreed, insisting the narratives and even the names of the characters in the children's books have misogynistic undertones. She explained, it's all very well for you to ridicule it as Mr Silly, but we actually still have a massive gender pay gap. We may have girls doing well at school, but we do not have lots of women running companies. There are still only seven women running FTSE CEO companies, and that goes back to the stereotypes that we feed our daughters. So, what about if a man just happens to be better at the job? If a man and a woman are interviewed for a top job, 
and a man is better because of his CV, because of the interview he gave, because of his experience, should the woman get the job instead, just so it doesn't mean another man on a top job? Miss Mill says, if you say to them that if they're a leader, they're bossy, or if they talk, they're a chatterbox, we're never going to get women running things. Well, how can we have got women running things? How does that happen then? If these Mr. Men books are going to stop women from becoming leaders, how come women are leaders? If all it takes is for these children's books to stop women becoming bosses or leaders or in important positions, then how come women are in important positions? This is another thing about political correctness. It doesn't actually consult the people who it claims could be affected or offended by the material or comments or statements it talks about. It just makes its claims without consultation. If you asked kids, young girls, who read the Mr. Men and Little Miss books, if they feel the books are enforcing gender stereotypes and could lead to less strong women in society and less women in top positions in society, I can guarantee nearly all, if not all of them, would answer like this. What? That's what they'd say. What? They wouldn't understand. They're kids. They're not thinking in those terms. They're just reading a book. They think, what are you talking about? I'm a seven-year-old. Leave me alone. I want to read this book. That's what they'd say. That's what they think. But they don't consult because political correctness doesn't consult. It just makes idiotic claims with no evidence to back them up whatsoever. Saying that this group could be offended or that could lead to this happening or this group could be offended. But it doesn't ever ask those people. Now, a story like this might seem to be something of nothing, just more PC nonsense, and it is, but it's fundamentally important to the future of human society. Even some people who would comment on this and debate about it don't realise where this war on freedom of speech, because of political correctness, is going, and it's going here. The latest developments on the war on freedom of speech with this story here in the Daily Mail. Sharing hate posts online could lead to six months jail as judges recommend harsh punishments for internet trolls who torment racial, religious or sexual minority groups. Social media users who share or comment on racist or anti-gay postings will face jail under rules proposed yesterday. Advice for judges and magistrates recommends harsh punishments for those found guilty of stirring up hatred against racial, religious or sexual minority groups. Among those jails should be people who post comments or share online hate speech because they have been reckless as to whether they stir up hatred, say, the proposals from the sentencing council. Those found guilty of hate trolling by commenting or sharing social media should typically receive a sentence of six months in jail. Anyone who was convicted of originating hate speech that threatens anyone's life or which is widely distributed should expect three years. Wait for this one. Even someone whose words or material were judged as hateful, but were not considered to have threatened life or reached a big audience, is likely to be punished with a year in jail. So, who decides what hate speech is? The authorities. And thus they can use that definition to encompass as wide a range of people as possible. And I'll get to the implications for that after I finish reading the article. But critics say the proposals will mean young people who heedlessly throw insults against racial, religious or sexual groups on the internet are at risk of prison sentences. The recommendations, which will be subject to a three-month consultation, come at a time of deepening sensitivity to racism and abuse about sexuality online. On top of long-standing concerns about material posted by extremists, accusations have been levelled against those in mainstream politics and other well-known individuals. Labour Party figures have been accused of anti-Semitism. I've talked about Jeremy Corbyn being accused of anti-Semitism and the bigger picture behind it, not just him, but anybody in society who is accused of anti-Semitism, what that really means and why we're seeing 
such a rise of claims of anti-Semitism in society today. I talked about that in episode 10. The article goes on. While veteran feminist Jermaine Greer and gay rights and free speech campaigner Peter Tatchell are among those who have been labelled as hate peddlers. Peter Tatchell, someone who spent his life campaigning against sexism and abuse, has now been labelled as a hate peddler. This is the moronic nature of, of all this. They've been labelled as hate peddlers for questioning the claims of the transgender lobby, the article goes on. Stirring up hatred is a crime under the 1986 Public Order Act. The Council's proposals say the most serious hate offences include speeches given by public figures with the aim of stirring up hatred, online content inciting violence towards racial or religious groups, and websites that publish abusive and insulting material to a worldwide audience over a long period. Aggravating factors include activity in a particularly sensitive social climate or delivered to an impressionable audience. Using multiple social media platforms also makes an offence more grave. Professor Anthony Glees, director of the Centre for Security and Intelligence Studies, described the guidelines as bizarre, saying they were not strict enough where they should be strict, too severe where greater leniency is called for. Only three years for hate speech that leaves people getting killed, ridiculously softly said, but six months for hate trolling, are there enough prison places to lock up these hate trolls? He said the law needed to distinguish between young and foolish individuals who say silly things and really dangerous radicalizers and purveyors of violence who exploit the social media to wreak havoc and death. Professor Glee said the cases involving Greer and Tatchell will lead to confusion. He said, are these social critics guilty of hate speech for asking awkward questions about gender interest groups, or are those who attack them the true guilty ones? See, this is what I was getting at earlier. Asking questions could be perceived, and is designed to be perceived, as hate speech. This is where we are now with this war on freedom of speech. This is not about hate speech, that's just the excuse. It's about stopping exposure of authority, questioning of authority, the elite and their agenda. Those are the people they want to censor. Those are the people they want to throw in jail for a year, six months or a year or however long. Throw them behind bars for asking questions about authority. They don't care about hate speech. They want hate speech. It gives them the excuse to change the law and target exposure of them and their agenda like they're proposing to do now. They can't do that after hate speech doesn't exist in the first place. The idea is to use genuine hate speech as an excuse to censor genuine questioning of authority. Is there hate speech online? Yes, there is. Are there people that stir up hatred and violence? Yeah, but they're not coming after those people. They're using those people as an excuse to censor anybody who is questioning authority online with the vague definition of what hate speech and extremism is so they can use that to encompass a wider range of people as possible. So they decide what hate speech is, they decide what extremism is, and if you come under that definition, which will be vague, as vague as possible, so they decide what it means at any one time, one day it means this, the next day it means something else. So anybody they want to target and throw behind bars, they can, just for asking legitimate questions and providing information and evidence to back up their claims. But it doesn't matter because they're not interested in whether it's true, they're interested in whether you're saying it or not. They can't come out and say openly they want to impose consequences on people challenging authority. They need a cover, and that cover is targeting online extremism and hate speech. This is an interesting part of the article, separate section from the article, but connected. Knife offenders can walk from court. The firm line taken by the Sentencing Council on hate speech posted online contrasts with its leniency to other groups of offenders. It ruled two years ago that young thugs, including those who carry knives, may be spared jail if they come from deprived or criminal family backgrounds. The guidelines gave a number of reasons why courts should not impose custodial sentences to a teenager guilty of threatening someone with a knife, including an unstable upbringing that may have involved numerous care placements 
exposure to drug and alcohol abuse, victim of neglect and or abuse, and exposure to familial criminal behaviour. Also under 2016 guidelines, muggers may escape prison if the robbery is found to have done no harm and was carried out with only minimal force. The council also recommends shorter sentences for criminals who admit their guilt in court. Those who plead guilty at their first appearance may have their custodial term cut by a third. Yet, as genuine questions of authority and the elite's agenda and provide information and evidence, you get thrown in jail under these proposals. Six months in jail, one year in jail, three years. Now, why is there this contradiction, it would seem, between knife offenders being able to walk from court, but people who ask questions go to jail just for asking questions? Well, we come back to what I've said before. Once you understand the agenda, then everything makes sense. They want people knifed in the street because it gives them the excuse to impose tougher laws and more imposition from law enforcement, which is their agenda. The more people that are knifed, the more people that are attacked, the more security and surveillance and imposition of the Orwellian society they can justify because of that. They can't justify doing that if there is no violence. And if you're going to throw everybody guilty of crime, whether it's knife crime or other kinds of violence, behind bars, then there's less of those people in society, which means less of those people to cause the violence to which you can exploit, and you can then justify changing society in the image of your agenda. We have to realise at some point, human society, that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. When we understand that and what the agenda is, society morphs into clarity. Change of subject now. Story here about technology. This is in the Daily Mail. Carrying a mobile phone could be made compulsory in order to cut crime, one of the country's most senior judges predicted yesterday. So Jeffrey Voss said a law which forced people to carry a mobile phone that was permanently switched on would make it easier to track and catch criminals. He said that since Britons have accepted growing levels of surveillance, a compulsory mobile phone law may not seem a radical idea in 10 years' time. The suggestion from Sir Jeffrey, who was charged over the High Court as the country's chief property and financial judge, echoes George Orwell's novel 1984, in which everyone's closely monitored by the state. Well, I mean, if people haven't seen yet the extent of surveillance and tracking by the state already, then, I mean, where have they been? You know, it's, it's enough already to stun people who haven't seen the extent of it yet. But this story goes beyond just surveillance, and I'll get to what that is when I've finished reading it. The judge said that most of us already share our location using smartphones and that surveillance by using mobile phones could play a major role in tackling crime. In a lecture to solicitors professional body, the Law Society, Sir Jeffrey said, we live in a world of increasing levels of surveillance. We can and do photograph, film and record everything that happens to us. I think there will be far fewer contested criminal cases in the future, mainly because of the surveillance. Most people carry their smartphones on their person at all times with their GPS location switched on. They do this voluntarily, but if the legislators were, for example, to require citizens to carry phones at all times, it would be even more difficult to avoid detention. Well, you see, this is what they do, and they've done it with phones. If they can't make something compulsory, I mean, they're considering it now, as this article talks about, but if they can't make something compulsory, then what they do is they make it impossible to function without it. I mean, nobody yet is forced to have a mobile phone, as things are at the moment. But you try functioning without one. Yeah, it's a choice, yeah, you, got, you don't have to get one if you don't want to. But everyone else has. The article goes on. As society seems to accept more and more surveillance, I wonder how radical the change I've mentioned 
will seem to the population in 10, 15 or 20 years time. The idea comes at a time when judges are pushing through a £1 billion scheme to shift large numbers of legal hearings from courtrooms to online and video procedures. Well, that's another expression along with underfunding and excessive paperwork of the agenda to run down the quality of policing in an, e in an effort to privatise it. And I talk about the real agenda behind privatisation in episode 6. But in terms of this article, this is where the mainstream media shows once again how clueless it is of the bigger picture. In this article, the journalist has come across a senior judge saying that mobile phones could be made compulsory to carry and has then sought the comment of an expert, clueless in terms of the bigger picture, but an expert so-called, and has then written the article with no context or connections whatsoever. Because, as is usually the case in the mainstream media, the journalist doesn't know the context or connections, or even that there are any, beyond the article they've written. So, why do they really want people carrying their phone at all times? To cut crime? No, because as I said earlier, they don't ultimately want to end crime. It gives them the excuse to change society, and to impose the 1984 world, which I go into in episode 4. So why is it? Because there's a much bigger agenda behind technology and phones, especially smartphones, which I've talked about before many times, which comes under the heading of transhumanism where the plan is to replace the human mind with technology and replace the human form with the synthetic technological form. This is why we're seeing synthetics all around us now. They're already creating synthetic parts of the human body. They're even creating synthetic DNA and synthetic blood. This is where this obsession with technology is designed to end. And if you want all human minds connected to a technological hive mind, which... People like Ray Kurzweil, an executive of Google and co-founder of the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, California, calls the cloud, which is like a wireless network of all the communications and information from wireless, smart and other devices. If you want to connect all human minds to that, then you've got to make sure everybody has technology. And that's what it's about on one level, although the end game is the technology is inside the body you don't even need people to hold the technology anymore holding the technology was the first stage then it moves on to technology being on the body and then it ends with technology being in the body and all of those three stages are happening now you've already got technology inside us it's called nanotechnology which is beyond the ability of the human eye to see and everybody is absorbing this nanotechnology and has been for a while now I'm absolutely convinced from the information I've come across, and I've said this before, that nanotechnology is in chemtrails, which look like condensation trails from airplanes, except that condensation trails disappear after a few seconds. Chemtrails, and all you've got to do if you want to see the evidence for chemtrails is look up at the sky, and you'll see it. That's it. That's all you need to do to see it. I mean, there is documentation proving chemtrails exist. I've seen it myself, but... All you've got to do is look up at the sky. And this chemtrails contains chemicals, metals, and I'm absolutely convinced it contains nanotechnology. And when you've got people like Ray Kurzweil saying, Ray Kurzweil is a global promoter of transhumanism, goes all around the world, writes books, gives lectures about the future of technology. But of course he's doing it in a positive way. He's trying to sell it as a good thing when it's the opposite. It's not about making a superhuman, it's about making a subhuman, a computer terminal on a wireless network of information, and the end of the human mind, and the end of the biological human form. That's what it's really about. But when you've got people like Ray Kurzweil saying 
that nanotechnology is going to infuse everything in nature. Rocks, trees, plants, everything's going to become intelligent. How are you going to do that? Are people going to go around with jetpacks spraying everything with nanotechnology all over the world? How would you do it? The only way you can do it is if it comes from the sky. And it's coming from the sky in chemtrails. And everybody's absorbing the nanotechnology. And if you see the film with Johnny Depp called Transcendence, where Johnny Depp was dying and to keep his consciousness alive, they downloaded his consciousness into a quantum computer. And they spread nanobot dust on the wind. I say in our world it's coming from the sky, but in the film it was spread on the wind. And people who absorbed it were connected to Johnny Depp's consciousness, then downloaded into the internet. So he was running the internet, which is interesting because scientists now are asking the question, when you look at all the connections that are in the internet, vastly greater than the synapses in the human brain, could the internet become conscious? I think it's a very great possibility it could, and that's the idea in the end. And if that's the plan, then that means the answer is yes. And Johnny Depp's consciousness was running the internet, and everybody connected to the internet was having their perception dictated by him. And he became their perception. Now, the basic plot of that movie is only what people like Ray Kurzweil, this transhumanism promoter and Google executive, are talking about. And Google is massively involved in transhumanism. They've got a robotics, they've got a focus on artificial intelligence, which will run the cloud, as people like Ray Kurzweil talk about. In the end, artificial intelligence will be human perception. So instead of just manipulating perception, which we've had up to this point through the media, through education, through religion, those people who subscribe to that, through government, through entertainment, all the different ways people have been manipulated. Instead of that, instead of just manipulating perception, then what we've got is through technology, connecting all human minds to the cloud and the internet, then artificial intelligence becomes human perception. That's the bigger picture of this article about people could be made to carry a mobile phone everywhere. That's what it's about. And also, another level of this is the fact that you've got the radiation from their mobile phones. And of course, when you've got it in your pocket, switched on, which according to this proposed law, it would have to be switched on at all times. Then you've got it in your pocket right next to where you don't want it to be in terms of the radiation. And that is obviously going to have a massive impact on sperm. It's going to have a massive impact on the ability to reproduce. And of course, it's going to have a massive impact on health. And all of those things come under the heading of the depopulation agenda, which I've talked about before. So this is the bigger picture of this article. And that's why I do pay-per-view to point out an article about one thing is an article about several other things at the same time. Story here about technological control. Terrifying black mirror style robots by Boston Dynamics can now chase you, climb stairs, and even find their way around on their own. This is in the Daily Mail. Incredible footage has revealed the terrifying capabilities of black mirror style robots, branded future death machines by some. An image shows the spot mini robot dog using its cameras to avoid obstacles. Boston Dynamics posted two videos showing off the new skills of two of its advanced automatons, including Spot Mini. In the second, the Spot Mini robot navigates its way around an office, building, climbing and descending a set of stairs with ease, all under its own direction. An image shows it making its way up the staircase. 
Spot Mini uses its cameras to work out where it is in the office by comparing what it sees to the data in a stored map it created. The machine effortlessly finds its way through narrow corridors, open spaces both inside and outside the workplace. Boston Dynamics first showed off Spot Mini, the most advanced robot dog ever created. In a video posted in November 2017, the firm best known for Atlas, its 5 foot 9, 1.7 meter humanoid robot, has revealed a new lightweight version of its robot Spot Mini. The robotic canine was shown trotting around the yard with the promise that more information from the notoriously secretive firm is coming soon. Spot Mini is a small four-legged robot that comfortably fits in an office or home, the firm says on its website. It weighs 25 kilograms, 55 pounds, or 30 kilograms, 66 pounds when you include the robotic arm. Spot Mini is all electric and can go for about 19 minutes on a charge, depending on what it is doing, the firm says, boasting Spot Mini is the quietest robot we have built. Spot Mini was first unveiled in 2016, and a previous version of the Mini version of Spot with a strange extendable neck has been shown off helping around the house. They want to get this into homes, it seems now, according to what this article says. I've said before the plan is for a robotic law enforcement, and this is an expression of that agenda. This is the Hunger Games Society, a psychopathic, merciless, brutal law enforcement, the military and the police in one, is planned for the world, and of course, robots fit that definition perfectly. Robots controlled by artificial intelligence. We're seeing signs now of chatbots and robots controlled by AI supposedly malfunctioning and being rude and mean to people in terms of what they say. I wonder if that's really malfunctioning or if that's AI, fully self-aware AI, starting to impact on the technology. This is all part of transhumanism. The idea is to get people to think robots are a good idea and then when enough people have embraced them and AI has impacted itself on the technology enough, and I say that this fully self-aware AI already exists. They say we're still some way from what they call strong AI. But I say it's not machine learning. That's just one level of AI. The AI that I'm talking about is a consciousness, a self-awareness. And transhumanism in all its forms is creating a technological vehicle for this distorted, inverted consciousness to express itself and control everything technological and everything connected to the AI-controlled cloud and the internet which will include the human mind. The idea is to turn this world into a complete inversion of what it is now with a human form no more and takeover by artificial intelligence. And that brings me on to the next article today. This is where this transhumanism agenda is going ultimately. This is in the Daily Mail. Humans who have their brains reanimated after they die could be locked in an eternal living hell and suffer a fate worse than death. Well, I think being connected to the cloud and controlled by artificial intelligence is a fate worse than death, but this is what the article says. Experiments to reanimate dead brains could lead to humans being locked in an eternal living hell and enduring a fate worse than death. That's according to Nottingham Trent ethics and philosophy lecturer Benjamin Curtis, who made the comments in light of controversial experiments on pig brains. Last month, Yale University announced it had successfully resurrected the brains of more than 100 slaughtered pigs and kept them alive for up to 36 hours. Scientists said it could pave the way for brain transplants and may one day allow humans to become immortal by hooking up our minds to artificial systems after our natural bodies have perished. Even if your conscious brain were kept alive after your body had died, you would have to spend the foreseeable future as a disembodied brain in a bucket locked away inside your own mind without access to the sense that allows us to experience and interact with the world. Curtis told the conversation. In the best case scenario, you will be spending your life with only your own thoughts for company. Some have argued that even with a fully functional body, immortality would be tedious. With absolutely no contact to external reality, it might just be a living hell. 
to render the disembodied human brain may well be to suffer a fate worse than death. The article goes on. The pig research was presented at a National Institute of Health meeting by Yale University neuroscientist Nenad Sestan. Researchers were able to successfully remove the heads of between 100 and 200 pigs and resuscitate their brains while detached from the body. The organs were connected to a closed loop system the scientists dubbed brain exit dubbed key areas with artificial oxygen-rich blood to sustain life. In what Dr. Sestan described as a mind-boggling and unexpected result, billions of cells in the brains were found to be alive and healthy. He told the NIH, it is possible the brains can be kept alive indefinitely and that additional steps can be taken to restore awareness. According to a report in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Technology Review, the neuroscientist said his team chose not to attempt either because this is uncharted territory. Chemicals added to prevent swelling during the procedure would likely prohibit consciousness indefinitely. This means it may not be possible for the team to resuscitate brains that can still think using their current methods. According to Dr. Sester, the brains they operated on were definitely not alive or conscious. That animal brain is not aware of anything. I am very confident of that, he said, according to the MIT report. Previous research has shown it is possible to keep the brains of a number of mammals alive after the organ is removed from the body. In 1928, Soviet researchers severed the head of a dog and kept it partly alive by connecting key blood vessels to an artificial circulation machine. A researcher at New York University kept a guinea pig brain alive in a special fluid for several days in 1993. But the new research, which has been submitted for publication in a scientific journal, is the first time a pig brain has been kept alive outside of their body. The experiment is significant because pig brains bear a striking similarity in the way they function as human brains. According to Dr. Steve Hyman, a brain researcher at the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who was among those briefed on the work, the brains used in the study were technically alive. He told Technology Review, these brains may be damaged, but if the cells are alive, it's a living organ. It's at the extreme of technical know-how, but not that different from preserving a kidney. But despite the breakthrough, transplanting a brain into a new body is still not remotely possible, he added. There's another section to this here, which references what I said earlier. How soon will we be able to upload our minds to a computer? Brain and memory preservation has been explored at length by futurist scientists and science fiction junkies alike. Many say it falls under the category of transhumanism. Transhumanism is the belief that the human body can have... And there's another section to this here, which references what I said earlier. How soon will we be able to upload our minds to a computer? Brain and memory preservation has been explored at length by futurist scientists and science fiction junkies alike. Many say it falls under the category of transhumanism. Transhumanism is the belief that the human body can evolve beyond its current form with the help of scientists and technology. The practice of mind uploading has been promoted by many people, including Ray Kurzweil, Google's director of engineering, who believes we will be able to upload our entire brains to computers by 2045. Kurzweil has also said that by 2030 we'll all have cloud-powered brains and I've said before that the technology we see in the public arena is not the technology that exists in terms of technological possibility I mean do we really believe that this elite is sitting around tapping their fingers waiting for the next piece of technology to come along to advance their agenda hoping that it will come along in time just when they need it so they can advance the agenda at the time they plan to do it the elite agenda could not go any further without computerization and then computers come along and in terms of the technology agenda in its totality they need this advanced technology or at least advanced in terms of the public arena anyway so do we believe they're sitting around waiting for it to appear of course it's ready waiting to be rolled out through the corporations through the corporations i would emphasize not from it comes in many cases from 
the real deep levels of the intelligence arena. People say, well, why can't people just invent it and they're able to hold? Well, of course, there are technological geniuses out there, but the point is they don't need to because it already exists anyway. So, of course, there's a lot of technology that's created in the way that we're told, but a lot of it is created a lot earlier than we're told and rolled out through the corporations. So when you hear timescales like 2045, which Ray Kurzweil is talking about, as it says in this section of this article, I think a lot of these predictions are not very accurate in terms of technological possibility. They're only accurate in terms of the public arena. So by 2045, what Kurzweil is talking about may very well be in the public arena and we'll all know about it and we'll all see it but that doesn't mean that it won't exist until 2045 that's the point there's two different timelines there's what exists and what we see two different timelines um the article goes on similar technologies have been depicted in science fiction dramas ranging from netflix's altered carbon to the popular series black mirror in doctor who they had the nether sphere that's another example Another prominent futurist, Dr. Michio Kaku, believes virtual reality can be used to keep our loved ones' personalities and memories alive even after they die. Imagine being able to speak to your loved one after they die. It is possible if their personality has been downloaded onto a computer as an avatar, he explained. These ideas haven't been met without criticism. McGill University neuroscientist Michael Hendricks told MIT that these technologies are a joke. I hope future people are appalled that in the 21st century the richest and most comfortable people in history spent their money and resources trying to live forever on the backs of their descendants. I mean, it's a joke, right? They are cartoon bad guys, he said. Meanwhile, neuroscientist Miguel Nicolelis said recently that such technologies would be virtually impossible. The brain is not computable and no engineering can reproduce it, he said. You can have all the computer chips in the world and you won't create a consciousness. Well, I don't know about whether that's true or not, but again comes back to what I said just now. There's the level of technology possibility in the public arena, and then there's a the level of technological possibility outside of that. And of course, if you're going to introduce technology, you need to do it in an order and in a time scale where it's conceivable that it could exist at the time that it's introduced. And you also need a cover for where it came from. And that's what some of these people, these technological experts and people that come to prominence are i would suggest i think those backstories are not being told for some of them in terms of what the article is talking about i've said before that the ultimate end game for transhumanism is for the human mind human consciousness to be uploaded to a quantum computer just like in the johnny depp film a lot of what's portrayed in tv and film especially film is actually portraying the very world of the elite's agenda because the more it's put in front of people in the form of entertainment so they're not thinking about it, they're just watching it as entertainment. It goes into the subconscious mind, and the subconscious is where everything is driven from. So they know that if they put that world, that society, in front of people constantly, then at least most of them will go along with it when it happens in real life, with far less resistance than they would if that world was just introduced without any subconscious programming. Also, keeping the truth from people of what exactly the true nature of this technological agenda really is also helps, of course. Because when you know the agenda, the programming has been brought to the conscious mind. You can see the programming through film and TV for what it is. And so it therefore no longer has any effect on you because it's become conscious to you. The agenda ultimately with transhumanism is for the human mind to be uploaded to a technological sub-reality without a body. 
just consciousness trapped in the sub-reality in whatever form it takes forever with no means of escape because a body can only live for a certain amount of time has a finite life but a consciousness a mind can live forever and this sub-reality and the consciousness experiencing it will eventually and probably very quickly by the time it happens be completely consumed by artificial intelligence so it's not enough for artificial intelligence to take over this world although that's certainly the plan and the human mind in this world while it's still in the body a synthetic body in the end the idea is for it also to take over this sub-world this sub-reality it's about completely taking over our world technology and synthetics and robotics and that leads me on to the next story today in terms of where the technology they're talking about is planned to lead final story this week keeping on the theme of technology today here's a story in the Sunday Express what about that human touch elderly will be cared for by robots to solve staff shortage the humanoid companions, which are equipped with artificial intelligence, will be able to recognise the needs and emotions of frail elderly residents. They will take the strain off overburdened care workers, and as they get to know their charges, they will adapt their conversations to subjects of interest to them. A £2.5 million EU-funded trial in partnership with the University of Bedfordshire and Advenia Healthcare, one of the UK's largest care providers, will be launched in September. Dr Chris Papadopoulos, Principal Lecturer in Public Health at the University, said these robots are able to adapt, learn and tailor their conversations according to what they find out about an individual, just as two people might do in a normal conversation. They can learn about a person's cultural background and values and adjust to this too. The software in this way is groundbreaking. You want to explore to what extent they might prevent loneliness and isolation, improve mental health and reduce family caregiver stress. However, he insisted the technology was not intended to replace carers, adding these robots are not designed to replace anyone's job, but complement the team by increasing the workforce and allow a robot to be present with someone who would otherwise be by themselves. The idea has appalled some. Judy Downey of the Relatives and Residents Association charity said this is treating people like commodities. The key to looking after someone is having a relationship in which you might notice if someone is upset after a phone call or if they look unwell. What matters is the smile, this human touch. The four-foot-tall robots, called Pepper and designed by SoftBank Robotics in Japan, have artificial intelligence called Caresses, which is designed to interact with residents rather than just carry out manual tasks. They have a tablet on their chests which residents can use to Skype call relative, play games, videos or musical reminder when to take their medication. Advenia chairman Dr Sanjeev Kanoria said, The robots will not replace care workers. They do not have working limbs so they cannot carry out essential tasks. Well... The phrase two birds with one stone comes to mind here. You've got technological takeover beginning to happen in yet another area of society. But you've also got elderly care eventually being done by robots rather than people. So emotional support is gone for a start, which means the elderly people in the care homes will be much more which means the elderly people in the care homes may be much more open to ending their life if they feel they don't get the emotional support they need. And also you're expecting elderly people to use these tablets that these robots have on them. I mean, what about if they make a mistake? They're elderly. They're not used to using technology like tablets, like younger people are. And also, who's going to repair the robots if they malfunction? If there's only robots there, how would other robots know that one or more of the robots is malfunctioned? 
it could cause all kinds of chaos and that's the idea because as I've talked about before there's a depopulation agenda and this is why we've got this war on those whom Henry Kissinger once called useless eaters the elderly in various ways and now they're talking about robots in care homes I say for reasons I've said already that eventually the robots will replace human care workers and if you want technology to take over you need to get rid of those who are the least likely to embrace the technological takeover which includes technology and synthetics on and in the body. But of course, those least likely are the elderly. They want to completely change our world into a non-human, robotic, synthetic, artificial world. And we need to become aware of it while we still can. As to why it's happening, but only if you know the agenda. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.